All right. We are going to get into the Word, though, and I am excited about this. We are entering into a new sermon series called The Signs of the Times. Uh, here uh, at Kauai Bible Church, we have a calendar that we have created that guides us through reading the Bible cover to cover, uh, one chapter at a time. And we just so happen to be at the end of our calendar, which means this month we will be reading the book of Revelation. And so we thought this would be a good time to really dig into end-time prophecies and understanding end-time prophecies. But as I shared briefly last week, uh, I have... Uh, I don't know if it's a hang-up or an opinion or what it is, but, uh, you know, people get really into end-time prophecies. They've got, like, whole conferences, and there's books, and there's charts, and there's all of this stuff, and people get really into it, and I've, I've looked at some of it, and I've followed some of it, and I always find myself asking the same question after some of these presentations, and that is, so what now, right? So what now? And so my heart is not to study end times prophecies just for the sake of the prophecies themselves uh, or just for the sake of getting worked up over talking about the Antichrist or this or that. I believe the purpose of end time prophecies is so that the followers of Christ throughout history, no matter where we live in the timeline, that we would know what to do in the season that we live in. And so as we dig into end time prophecies, there's not going to be a lot of charts or anything like that. But what we're going to do is every single week during this sermon series, we're going to ask the question, what are we to do? And we want to take what we learn from the prophecy and apply it to our lives today as followers of Jesus. So that's our heart. That's what we're going to get after. Uh, if you've got your notes, you can find them in the bulletin. They're also on our church app. They're also attached to this video on our website, and they're attached to this audio if you're listening to the podcast. Here's our big picture point as we dive into this sermon series. End times prophecy was given to us in Scripture so we could understand the times we live in and respond in a way that points people to Jesus. Those prophecies are there for a purpose. Their purpose is so that we can understand the times we live in and that we can respond in such a way that we point people to Jesus. That's our heart today. And so what we're going to do today in this first sermon is we're going to kind of lay the foundation for the whole teaching series. And, and then we're going to begin to take our first step into this question, what are we to do? What are we to do? So I want to start out just by asking the question, what are the end times? I don't want to make an assumption that we're all super well-versed in the Bible or in Christian lingo and that, that we have all of this understanding. I want to make sure that we all know what we're talking about if we're going to talk about quote-unquote end times. So first off, let me throw a, a, a fancy word at you. That fancy word is eschatology. Eschatology. All right. Literally, eschatology means the study of last things, right? The study of last things. So in the church, when we say eschatology, what are we talking about? We're talking about the study of the theology of the last days or the end times, right? So when we talk about eschatology, we're studying what does the Bible say about the end of times. So what is the end times? Well, first, we need to understand that we live in the age of the church, Sometimes it's known as the age of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because the church was birthed on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out. 
And that age of the church started on that day sometime around A.D. 33, and we are still living in the age of the church to this day. The age of the church is going to last from the day of Pentecost, that day that the church was born, until the second coming of Christ. Now, the final seven years of the age of the church is known as the Great Tribulation. Why? Because the the events of human history are going to get so progressively bad, there is going to be so much difficulty and distress that it's known as the Great Tribulation. It is going to be the most difficult seven years that humanity has ever known. It's also going to be the last seven years of humanity as we know it on earth today. So we're in the age of the church, but the last seven years of the age of the church, the great tribulation, is what we're referring to when we're talking about the end times. So here's just a really basic timeline. And like I said, I want to keep it simple. There's people who have dedicated their entire careers and they write books and all kinds of stuff on on end times timelines. But I just want to give you a simple one uh, so that we can understand, right? So we're going to go from the church age that we live in to the great tribulation, the final seven years of the church age. At the end of those seven years, Jesus is coming back physically, the second coming of Christ. When he comes back, he's going to establish the millennial reign. Now, that does not mean that millennials are going to rule the earth. All right? Whew! All right. (laughs) It means that Jesus is going to reign for a thousand years, the millennial reign. At the end of the thousand years, there's going to be one last battle at Armageddon. Ultimately, uh, the devil and all of his demons are going to be cast into the burning lake of fire for all eternity. And then there's going to be the great white throne, also known as the judgment seat of Christ, where we're all going to stand before God, and either our names are written in the book of life or they're not. And then we're going to enter into eternity in a new heaven and a new earth where we're going to live forever in a perfect paradise, even more perfect than Kauai, in the presence of God forever, right? That's the timeline. That's, that's what it's going to look like. That's our, our simplified timeline. Now, you might be saying, Pastor, you left a key thing out. The, the rapture's not up there. Well, we're going to get to that in a few weeks because there's actually a great variety of interpretations and understanding of the rapture. So we're going to come back to that. Um, But this is our our simple understanding. All right, so everybody with me? This is what we're talking about when we talk about the end times. Primarily, we're looking at the great tribulation and the second coming of Christ when we're talking about end times prophecies. All right, before we get into the end time prophecy, I actually want to start with a scripture that doesn't necessarily refer to the end times, but I believe it speaks to exactly what we need as followers of Christ to live in the last days. And these scriptures are found in 1 Chronicles chapter 12. And what's happening here in 1 Chronicles chapter 12 is that King Saul has died, and and so David has been anointed as the king, but he's only immediately accepted as the king uh, in, in, uh, in Judah and in Benjamin, right? Where, where he's from. The other ten tribes don't immediately accept him as king. They want to take one of Saul's relatives and install that person as king. And so there's actually a civil war that breaks out in order for David to unify the throne and lead all of Israel. 
And as that civil war is about to break out, many people from all the tribes are deciding, are we going to follow David or are we going to follow the house of Saul? And in 1 Chronicles 12, what it's doing is it's just listing numerically. This many people from this tribe chose to follow David. This many people from this tribe. This many people, yada, yada, yada. And it lists all 12 tribes. But interesting that within that list, which is basically just a very straightforward list of numbers, it only stops to make commentary regarding two of the 12 tribes. And remember, if it's in there, it's important, right? So we don't know why the writer of Chronicles stopped to, to, to provide commentary on only two of the 12 tribes. But we want to look at that commentary because I believe it speaks to us today. And that's in verses 32 and 33. It says this, Of the sons of Issachar, men who understood the times with knowledge of what Israel should do. The chiefs were 200 and all their kinsmen were at their command. Of Zebulun, there were 50,000 who went out in the armor army who could draw up in battle formation with all kinds of weapons of war and helped David with an undivided heart. So two things, to live in these last days, to be followers of Christ that will point people to Jesus in the day that we live in, there are two things that I believe this commentary provides us that we need. The first one is we need the and. You say, what are you talking about, pastor? The and. What does it say about the sons of Issachar? It says they understood the times and they knew what to do. They understood the times and they knew what to do. For some reason, the people of this particular tribe had a discernment. They had an understanding of the days that they lived in. And because they had that understanding, they knew what they were to do in that day. And in this context, they knew that they were to back David and not the house of Saul. We need both. We need to understand the times, and we need to know what to do, right? If all we do is understand the times, well, we're just filled with knowledge. And what do we know about knowledge? It puffs up. If we know what to do, but we don't know the right time to do it, then we're doing the right thing at the wrong time. But when we have the and... When we can understand the times that we live in and know what to do, then we have what we need. And then the second thing, you probably guessed it, is an undivided heart. The people of Zebulun, man, they were warriors. They had a variety of weapons. They had a variety of formations. They knew how to do battle. They knew how to go to war. But most important is that they helped David with an undivided heart. If we're going to be a people who knows what to do in the last days, we need to have an undivided heart for Jesus. We need to know that we're going to go to war for Jesus and that we don't have any doubt or lingering issue or any division or any love for the world, but that we're going to have an undivided heart for Jesus. If we just happen to live long enough to live during the Great Tribulation, then we are going to stand before the Antichrist and the Antichrist is going to demand that we renounce Jesus and walk away from him. And if we stick with Jesus, we're going to be executed for our declaration of faith. That's going to require an undivided heart. Right? This isn't just religiosity. This isn't just going to church on Sunday. 
This is an undivided heart that we have chosen to follow Jesus. So this is what we want. We want the and. We understand the times. We know what to do. We have an undivided heart. We're going to be a people ready for these last days. Now, there are many key sources of end times prophecy. In fact, end times prophecy is kind of sprinkled all throughout Scripture. All throughout the different prophets, the major prophets, the minor prophets, the writers of the New Testament, Peter, John, Paul, all the Beatles, they all, uh, they all wrote about it. But I just want to give you a few, and I just, I'm giving these to you to write down so that you can read them on your own because we're not going to teach all of these today. But Daniel 7 through 12, so basically the second half of the book of Daniel is all end times prophecy, and, and the accuracy of it is amazing. Uh, Zechariah chapter 14 speaks powerfully to the second coming of Christ. First Thessalonians chapters 4 and 5, uh, Paul writes about the second coming of Christ. Obviously, the whole book of Revelation, which we will be reading this month in our rooted Bible reading calendar. And then the Olivet Discourse, which takes place in all three of the Synoptic Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, and this is the one that we're going to camp out on, and this is the one that's going to be the foundation of our teaching series for these whole five Sundays, is the Olivet Discourse. Now, don't let the fancy name throw you off. Discourse just means teaching, and Olivet just means that he was on the Mount of Olives when he did it. So the Olivet Discourse just means Jesus was teaching on the Mount of Olives. The Olivet Discourse in the Gospel of Matthew is the second longest recorded sermon, right? Second only to the Sermon on the Mount, which I think is pretty cool, right? Because the Sermon on the Mount happened at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and he was preaching about how we should live in the kingdom of God. And then the Olivet Discourse happens at the end of Jesus' ministry as he teaches us how we are to live in the last days. So it's the second longest sermon in the Gospel of Matthew, but when you combine together the fact that it appears in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it actually has the most coverage of any of Jesus' sermons that he ever spoke. Dr. Tim LaHaye, who is a well-known teacher and author, he said this, the Olivet Discourse delivered shortly before Jesus' crucifixion, is the most important single passage of prophecy in all the Bible. Think about that. That's a bold declaration, the most important single passage of prophecy in all the Bible. It is significant because it came from Jesus himself immediately after he was rejected by his own people and because it provides the master outline of end times events. Right? So, I mean, we've got prophetic words all through, uh, you know, Isaiah and, and Jeremiah and Zechariah. And, of course, we've got John and Peter. And we've got all of these prophetic words. But here in the Olivet Discourse, we hear directly from Jesus himself a master outline of what the end time events are going to look like. And this takes place during the Passion Week, right? The week before Jesus was crucified. So he had just come. He had done the triumphal entry where he rode on the back of a donkey and they waved the palm branches and shouted Hosanna in the name of the Lord. He had uh, already cursed the fig tree, if you guys remember that story. He had gone into the temple and started flipping over the money changers' tables and, and cleansed the temple. 
people. And then he had just gotten into basically an all-day argument with the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, and, and basically renounced all of them, right? Again, Sermon on the Mount, blessed are those, blessed are those, blessed are those. Now during the Passion Week, it's woe unto you and woe unto you and woe unto you as he's calling out the religious leaders. And then after a long day of calling out the religious leaders, we get to the Olivet Discourse. So this is where we are in in the progression. The Olivet Discourse is long. It's Matthew chapters 24 and 25. But we're just going to hone in on 14 verses for the sake of this teaching series. And each week we're going to take a couple of the 14 verses and break them down. I want to start in verse 8 of Matthew chapter 24. Yeah, we're going to start in the middle, and then we'll jump back to the beginning. Because I think this is a key understanding of us as we look for the fulfillment of end-time prophecy. Matthew 24, 8 says this, But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs or pains. Nobody says pangs anymore. Um, Well, what does this mean? Well, Jesus is talking about the signs of the end times, and he says they're going to come like birth pains. Well, what does that mean? Well, if we think about birth pains, what happens? They start out mild and irregular, right? You start having contractions as the uterus is preparing to push a baby out, and you might have a, a mild contraction, and then nothing happens for a couple hours. And then you have a mild contraction and nothing happens. And then you have some Braxton Hicks contractions. You think the baby's coming. You rush to the hospital. Your parents drive from another state to come see the baby. Oh, is that just me? Okay. And it was a false alarm and you go home. But what happens is those contractions start getting more and more regular. And they start building in intensity a.k.a. pain, right? They, they start getting stronger, and they hurt more, and they're more intense, and they start coming closer and closer together until they're just a few minutes apart. You know you got to get to the hospital quick because the baby's coming. And then the time of fulfillment is the baby is born. Right? So Jesus says the signs of the end times are going to be just like that. They're going to be mild and sporadic. It's going to be very irregular at first. But the closer we get to the end times, the more we're going to see a steady increase in intensity and things happening closer and closer together. So what does that mean? It means that we are not looking for isolated signs. What we're looking for is all of these signs that we're going to learn over the next five weeks. What we're looking for is a steady increase in the intensity of those signs. And we're looking for those signs to be happening more often and closer together. And the more we see the increase in the intensity and the increase in the regularity, then we know that we are moving closer and closer to the end times. So we ask ourselves the questions, not are these things happening? Because the truth is a lot of these things are happening all the time. Right? Jesus said there'd be wars and rumors of wars and there would be natural disasters and famine and pestilence. Well, those things have all occurred throughout human history. So we're not just looking for the sign. We're asking, are these things happening more intensely now than they were before? And if the answer is yes, then we are moving towards the end times. 
So I just want you guys to have this idea of the birth pains, right? The birth pains. This is what we're looking for. All right, so now let's jump back to the beginning and let's dig into the Olivet Discourse together. Verse 1, Jesus came out from the temple. What was he doing when he came out from the temple? He was having his all-day-long argument with the religious leaders. Right? So after he just declared woe over all of the Pharisees because of their false religiosity that they practiced, it says Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. This is kind of weird. I don't understand the timing of this, right? After spending all day in the temple, you figure Jesus is exhausted. He just had some serious conflicts. He just delivered some difficult messages to people that, honestly, he loved, right? What do we know about Jesus? He wept over Jerusalem. Just because he was having conflict with the Pharisees doesn't mean that he hated them. He loved them. So this was difficult for him. It was draining. And so he's leaving. He's probably emptied himself out. Why in that moment would the disciples stop and say, Jesus, have you noticed how amazing the temple is? I don't know. I don't know why they chose that moment to stop and glory at the splendor of the temple, but they did. But Jesus used it as an opportunity to be the springboard into the most important prophetic sermon he would ever preach. And so it says, verse 2, And he said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly, I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us when all these things will happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. Right? So here's where we see Jesus is sitting on the Mount of Olives. His disciples ask him, What's the end of the age going to look like? And then Jesus is going to begin to break it down. But we're going to stop right there and talk about the destruction of the temple. Because even though so the weird timing of the disciples, that this was the moment they said, man, Jesus, isn't this temple amazing? Isn't this beautiful? We get to worship here. And Jesus' response was, you see all of this? I say to you, not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. Not only is he prophesying the destruction of the temple, he's saying not even one stone is going to be left standing. Now, we know that he prophesied this in approximately 33 A.D. If we assume Jesus was born in 0 A.D., the year of our Lord, then when he was 33 years old and about to go to the cross, he prophesied this. And we know that this prophecy was fulfilled in 70 A.D., just 37 years later. Why is this significant? Well, first, let's talk about the temple itself. And uh, we've got a little bit of a timeline, I think, Karen, if you can find that, uh, the progression of the temple of God. It started out with Moses' tabernacle, right? They were a nomadic people. They traveled in the wilderness. So God gave them a movable temple, right? It was made of tapestries and, and tarps and tents, and everything was built with rings on it that you could put poles in so they could carry everything with them, and they could pack up the tabernacle, move it, reset it up, pack it up, move it, reset it up. There was Moses' tabernacle, and that tabernacle, uh, was in use for hundreds of years. 
until the time of King David, when David said, I want to build a house for my Lord. And God said, no, there's too much blood on your hands. You cannot build me a house, but your son will be a man of peace. He will build my house. And so Solomon built a temple, and at the day that he built it, it was probably the most elaborate building ever built. There was so much riches in the kingdom of Israel that everything was covered in gold and, and silver, and people came from uh, nations and empires all around. They came to view the splendor of Solomon's temple. It was this glorious place where God's presence dwelt and the Israelites could worship. But we know that because of their sin, Nebuchadnezzar's army from Babylon came and destroyed Solomon's temple. And it was left laid waste for 70 years while the people of God were in captivity. And then when the Persian Empire took over the Babylonian Empire, they allowed the Israelites to return to Jerusalem. And under Zerubbabel, who was of the family line of David, he was... Uh, appointed as the governor of Jerusalem, that they rebuilt the temple, and it was known as Zerubbabel's temple. Now, compared to Solomon's temple, it was nothing. In fact, it says that those men who were old enough, who had seen Solomon's temple with their own eyes, when they just saw the foundation of Zerubbabel's temple, they could tell how small it was going to be. It said they were weeping and wailing because they were so disappointed with how insignificant Zerubbabel's temple would be. But they finished the smaller version of the temple, and it was still adequate to house the presence of God, and they worshiped, and they did their sacrifices and all of that. And fun fact, Zerubbabel's temple lasted a lot longer than Solomon's temple. King Herod had the authority over Jerusalem in about 20 B.C. Herod was known for his amazing architectural projects. And so he decided to apply that to the temple. He wanted to restore Zerubbabel's temple to the glory of Solomon's temple. And so he set out to do a massive expansion of the temple. First, he had to expand the foundation. And so what he did is he leveled the ground and he brought in retaining walls so that he could build this large mount upon which they could build a large temple. That is known as the Temple Mount. And the Temple Mount that King Herod built in 20 B.C. is still standing to this day. Then he built a massive temple around Zerubbabel's temple. They said that the stones they quarried were like one piece of stone, and it was a cube, you know, 12 feet around. And, and I guess it wasn't a cube because it was like 20 feet high, so it wasn't a perfect square. But, um, and then they used special levers and pulleys to pull these massive stones up to the temple mount. And they, they used a stacked stone method that required no mortar, just massive stones stacked on top of themselves. And when the temple was complete, it was known as one of the wonders of the ancient world. And Zerubbabel's temple became Herod's temple. And that was the temple of Jesus' day. When the disciples stopped and said, Jesus, have you seen this temple? They were talking about Herod's temple. It was amazing. It was spectacular. And so the first thing Jesus says when they say, hey, isn't this temple amazing? Is Jesus says, every single stone is going to be torn down. Not a single stone is going to be left. That was shocking. 
right? This was highly controversial. How could this happen? Even such massive stones, what army would have any sort of firepower to bring down such a massive structure, right? And so what we're seeing here is that Jesus begins the Olivet Discourse by giving an end times prophecy, by giving an event that would happen in their lifetime, an event that was so intense, so extreme, so shocking that it was sure to capture their hearts, right? So before he would tell them about things that wouldn't happen for thousands of years, he told them about one thing that would happen in their lifetime. Why? Because if they could believe that one thing, then they could believe everything else. Well, wouldn't you know it that in 70 A.D., when the Israelites tried to rise up against the Roman Empire, Titus, who was the general of the Roman army at that time, did something that had never been done before in warfare. He built a wooden scaffolding around Herod's temple. And upon that wooden scaffolding, he piled up as much wood as he possibly could. They brought in chopped down trees from everywhere and just piled the scaffolding so that the fire wouldn't just burn at the base of the building. It would burn from top to bottom completely around the building. And they lit one of the hottest, most intense fires that had ever burned. And that fire was so hot and so intense that even the stone lost its integrity so that the Roman army could come in and toss those stones off of the structure and down the valley from the Temple Mount, every single stone. Now, I've never been to Israel. Maybe Mark and Val can tell me, but I have read that if you go to the Temple Mount today, you can still see some of those stones at the bottom of the valley that were thrown off of Herod's temple. It was shocking. It was unbelievable that this temple could be torn down. But that is exactly what Titus and the Roman army did. So what are we to do? Right? We're going to ask this question every Sunday, and it happened to do with this. Jesus gave a shocking prophecy, and it happened within their lifetime. What are we to do with this whole idea of end times prophecies? The first thing is this. We have to accept that we cannot stop it. We have to accept that we cannot stop it. Jesus did not give these prophecies so that the church would stop them. He gave them as signs. All right, I like watching stand-up comedy. The problem is most stand-up comedy is inappropriate, and so I don't watch it. But I have found there is one comedy club in Utah called Dry Bar Comedy, and it's called Dry Bar Comedy because nobody in the audience is drinking alcohol, and the comedians have to be family-friendly. And so they run all of these dry bar comedy specials on Amazon Prime. So I have like this whole treasure trove of clean comedy that I can watch. I love it. Well, one of the comedians I was watching recently, he is from the South, and he was talking about how in the South they make up words, right? So we call it the pigeon of the South. And he says the way they make up words is they'll combine four or five words together into one word. And he gave lots of examples, but one of the examples he gave, this is one word in the South. What you not going to do, all right? That's one word. So they'll say, what you're not going to do is talk back to your mother. 
What you're not going to do is leave the door open when you run outside. So I can just picture Jesus in the Olivet Discourse giving all of these signs to his followers, and Jesus is saying, what you're not going to do is try to stop it. Why is this important to talk about? Because I believe that the church has gotten off track trying to stop the course of the culture of the world when that is never what we were supposed to do. We were supposed to hear these prophecies and accept that we cannot stop it. There was nothing the disciples were supposed to do to stop the destruction of the temple. They were just supposed to see it as a sign. I believe that in the 1980s was the first time the church started to notice that the American culture was moving away from the church. Right? They had the Jesus People Movement of the 1970s, which they just released a movie about it. I know it's not on Kauai, but when it comes out on digital, we can watch it. But in the 1980s, when the culture of America began to move away from the church, significant church leaders, those that were influential, the televangelists, those that had the big churches, their response to seeing the culture moving away from the church was to try to stop it. And so what happened is instead of doing the work that the church was supposed to do, is they got into the work of trying to stop things from happening in the culture. And they tried to do that by gaining political power and all sorts of things. And now here we are 40 years later, and the church didn't stop it, but the church lost its authority and its purpose in the process. We need to accept that we are not supposed to stop what is happening. When we see the signs and we see the intensity of the birth pains increasing, we're not supposed to stop it. What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to point people to Jesus in the midst of it. So instead of screaming and shouting and hollering and protesting and getting worked up on social media and all of these things, because we want to stop where the culture is going, no. What we need to do is love people and point them to Jesus. But we've got to accept that we cannot stop it. You guys with me? Amen. Second thing we need to do is trust God. Why did Jesus give this shocking prophecy to open up the Olivet Discourse? Because when the disciples saw that temple leveled to the ground, they would have no doubt that God's word is true. Any lingering doubt, any struggle they were having in the faith, any questions that they were going through, any deconstruction that was happening in their personal lives would have been wiped out immediately when they saw that temple torn down and they remembered Jesus said not one stone would be left standing and they would have an aha moment. God's word is true. We can trust what God says and we don't have to doubt John 16, 1, Jesus said, These things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling. Come on, if we remember what Jesus said, we're not going to fall all over ourselves. We're not going to panic. We're not going to freak out. We're not going to be chicken little running around. Oh, the culture's going to hell. Oh, my goodness, what happened to America? No, we're not going to stumble. We're not going to fall all over ourselves. Jesus said, These things I have spoken to you. 
so that you may be kept from stumbling. Three verses later, he says, but these things I have spoken to you so that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told you. So listen, when we're going through difficulty and hardship and trial and tribulation and when the culture has turned against us and hates us and and all of these things are happening, all we need to do is remember that God's word is true. Jesus said it was going to happen. We can trust him. And if we can trust him, then we can have faith even if we're living through the great tribulation, which we're not there yet. But if we happen to be alive during it. Another fun fact, just a little sidebar here. In the book of Revelation, when the end times come and the Antichrist is rising to power, it says that the Jews are offering sacrifices in the temple. Well, I told you the temple mount is still standing today. The difficulty is that on top of that temple mount is a Muslim mosque. And so what is the most important, most significant holy site for the Jewish people is covered with an Islamic building, and the Jewish people are not allowed there. We also know, according to Old Testament law, that the Jews are only allowed to offer sacrifices at the temple. And so in the book of Revelation, it says that the Jews are offering sacrifices in the temple. So if we want to look for something that is happening that's going to point towards the end times, then could we be alive in the day that the Jewish temple is rebuilt on the temple mounts? That's it, sidebar. Okay. (laughs) Just a little truth for us to look for. We can trust that God's word is true. Check this out. This is according to uh, the Dictionary of Prophecy. There are 1,239 prophecies in the Old Testament, and there are 578 prophecies in the New Testament, which means there's a total of 1,817 prophecies in the Bible. Of the 31,000 individual verses in the Bible, 8,352 of them are prophetic, which means that 27% of the Bible is prophecy. And of all of those 1,800 prophetic words, at least half of them have already been fulfilled precisely as God declared. And the half that hasn't been fulfilled are all the end-time prophecies. So if we can trust that God's word is true and every word that he has spoken has come to pass exactly as he spoke it, then we can trust God in the day that we live in and we will be the source of strength and stability that a world needs as it's spiraling towards a tribulation. Come on, somebody get excited in here. All right, only two and a half hours to go. You guys are doing great. (laughs) last one and then we'll wrap up what are we to do in this day in light of what jesus said we are to allow prophecy to shape our priorities we are to allow prophecy to shape our priorities what if every day we looked at the olivet discourse and other prophetic words about the second coming of jesus And we allowed those words to determine what's most important in our life today. Would we live differently? Would there be a different passion? 
would there be a different focus? Right? We are to look forward to the second coming of Christ. I love this. Just in the New Testament, think about this. In Titus, Paul wrote that we are to look for the second coming of Christ. In James, he wrote that we are to be patient for the second coming of Christ. In 1 Corinthians, Paul wrote that we are to eagerly anticipate the second coming of Christ. In Matthew, Jesus said that we are to be alert for his second coming. In 2 Timothy, Paul wrote that we should be longing for his second coming, that we should love it with a longing passion. So the Bible says we should be looking for it, we should be patient for it, we should eagerly anticipate it, we should long for it, we should love it, we should be alert for it, we should be teaching about it, right? The second coming of Christ should be a prophetic focus that drives our priorities. Paul Benoire, who was a a college professor, theologian, he said this, A believer who gets out of bed in the morning thinking, my Lord Jesus could return soon, will probably not let sin take root in his or her life. But Christians who rarely, if ever, reflect on the realities of the future life are far more vulnerable to temptation and sin. And perhaps that explains something of the sin and apathy seen in much of the church today. We have forgotten about the second coming of Christ. We've gotten so focused on the comfort of our life today We have not allowed prophecy to shape our priority. So Jesus is calling us back from 2,000 years ago in his Olivet Discourse when he said that temple will be torn down. And now we have the benefit of history that those first disciples did not, that we can look back at A.D. 70 and see his prophetic word fulfilled to the exact letter that he spoke it. And we can say God's word is true. And if we are living in the last days, we don't have to be afraid. We can trust in God. And if we wake up every day thinking about the second coming of Christ and allowing prophecy to shape our priorities, that we would live with a passion and an edge that is exactly what this world needs in this day that we live in. Amen? Come on, can I get a hallelujah? Woo! Let me get the worship team to come back up. I want to close with one last quote. I want to pray for us. We're going to worship. This was the introduction now. We're ready. If you're a tourist, man, thank you for being here today. You're just going to have to get the podcast now because you just can't wait for what's going to happen next week. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Dr. David Jeremiah, who was a phenomenal teacher of end-time prophecy, he said this, when we grasp the message of all events, our plans and our priorities will change Our vision will shift from the immediate to the ultimate. I love that. From the immediate to the ultimate. We'll see today's headlines in the light of the hallelujah of his return. We'll think better thoughts, feel healthier emotions, respond with better reactions, and do better things. Come on, Kauai Bible Church. We're going to shift from the immediate to the ultimate. When we read the news, we're not going to freak out. We're going to read the news in light of the second coming of Christ. We're going to think better thoughts, feel healthier emotions, have better reactions, and do better things. Let's stand together. Let me pray for you today. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord God, that you'd not just leave us to fend for ourselves or try to figure out the world or the day or the times.
But you gave us exactly what we needed to know. You gave us the outline. You gave us the plan. You gave us the very things to look for. And so, Father, I pray that we would shift our focus in this day. Lord, would you take us from the immediate to the ultimate? Lord, would you take us from the day of our comfort to the day of Christ's return? Lord God, would you draw us out of our comfort zones so that many more can know Christ before it is too late? Jesus, let the passion that we have for your coming, let the word of your prophecy change us, Lord, that as sin would try to bombard us, we would stand firm and say, no, we are not going to go the way of the world. We are not going to live the way of the world. We are going to live the day of Christ because we are in an important day and we have an important work. We have a great calling. We're not going to come down off the wall because we have a great work to do. Jesus. Stir our hearts today, we ask, Lord. Stir our hearts that we could live in this day. Oh, Lord God, that we will not live the way the world is telling us to live. Lord God, we will not live with the fear that is heaped upon us, Lord. Uh, Lord, through... Uh, network news and this and that, Lord. We will not live in the chaos or bitterness or division of social media, Lord. We will not enter into the fray in the broken way of humanity. But because we trust you, God, we will enter the fray with a peace. We will enter the fray with a hope. We will enter the fray with a word of stability that will change atmospheres and change hearts and change lives. So would you shape us today, Lord, by the words that we are studying? Would you make something new in us? Would you birth a fresh passion in us, Lord, that we could be your people in this day, in this time? Even if the birth pains are increasing, Lord, we are not afraid and we will not be shaken. We have a message. We have a kingdom. We have a king. And we want to call people to your kingdom, Lord. Use us in this day. Holy Spirit, minister to our hearts. Even as we worship right now, would you remind us that your word is true? Would you give us a trust and a stability that, Lord, you have all of this planned in advance? You know what's coming. You know why you put us here. Now, Lord, release us into our purpose and our destiny. We thank you for this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah.